This is Matthew chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. This is God's word, truthful in all it affirms. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Please pray with me. And now, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You who are our rock and our redeemer, open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word, and grow us thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. Amen. You may be seated. A person doesn't know how much he has to be thankful for until he has to pay taxes on it. A person doesn't know how much he has to be thankful for until he has to pay taxes on it. Uh, Albert Einstein said, the hardest thing in the world to understand is the income tax. So it's tax season, and as you're thinking about that, just know that even Albert Einstein thought that American income tax was difficult. Why do we have to talk about taxes? Well, I don't, I don't know. Like I said, Matt assigned this to me, so I'm going to do, do my best to bring this to you. Um, and just recognize that it is, it's tax season. You might be thinking about that. Even one of the things that we're hosting at Zion is, uh, is help for people to get their taxes done. So if you have a fairly simple tax return and you're looking for help, uh, you can go to zionpca.com forward slash taxes and even set up an appointment uh, with some folks that we're, that we're hosting. Um, but this teaching that Jesus gives us in Matthew 22 is, right, the Sermon on the Mount that you're going to get into is more at the beginning of Matthew. And then, like I said before, this is, a, this is a post-Palm Sunday moment, right? Jesus has already come into Jerusalem. He already knows that he's going. He's going to go at the end of the week to the cross. And yet, here he is still teaching, taking every last moment to pass something on, not just to his disciples, but also to the Pharisees who are there to trick him. And how do we know the Pharisees are there to trick him? Well, let's walk through the passage, and we're going to see how it all works out. In the first verse, it tells us the Pharisees went, and they plotted how to entangle him in his words. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to entangle Jesus. And my first question is, what does it take to get to that point? You know, I have a son who is in a debate club, and, you know, it's sort of a game. He loves, he loves doing debate. Um, it's sort of a game to tangle people in their words. Someone's on one side of an issue, someone's on another side of an issue, and, and there are word games that we can play. I want to know the evidence, I want to stack up all my evidence, I want to lay my case out, I want to hear your side of the case, but when I hear your side of the case, are there some things that I can do 
to score some points by getting you to be tripped up in your words. That's the, that's the debate club. Sometimes that's how we wrangle over issues. We've all maybe watched a, a presidential debate or something like that. But this is different. The stakes are a lot higher here. The Pharisees say, we're not really interested in listening to his side of the argument. We've got to figure out how to put our words together in order to make Jesus trip. And when he does, then we can kill him. How do the most religious people of their day, these religious conservatives, come to the point where they decide this is what we ought to do? The Pharisees of all people should have known better. Right? The Pharisees were experts in Old Testament law. They were the, the theologians of theologians. They were respected religious leaders of their day. And they should have known better. They should have remembered something from 1 Kings. They should have, they should have known the story of Naboth's vineyard in 1 Kings 21. This famous Old Testament story involving King Ahab and Queen Jezebel and a poor man named Naboth. Naboth was just a guy in ancient Israel, and he inherited a vineyard from his family, and he took care of it, and King Ahab, the king who had charge of all of Israel, was jealous of this poor man and his little vineyard. He wanted it for himself. He wanted it for himself, and then he has, a, you know, if you go on and read the story, I'll paraphrase it, he basically has a little temper tantrum about Naboth having this nice little vineyard, and the king, who has all the other power in Israel, he can't have this one thing, and he wants it. And his wife says to him, oh, why don't you just take it? After all, you're the king. He says, well, I can't do it. You know the law, honey. It's illegal for me to just take things like that. There are, there are rights. The poor have rights. The king ha doesn't have just a, you know, uh, unending rights. He can't just take whatever he wants, but he could try and get Naboth to sell it. And when he goes to Naboth, Naboth is a man of integrity. And he says, this is the only thing I've got. It's my family's inheritance. And woe, you know, far be it from me to, to sell my birthright to you, this thing that I've been given for my family. And the king throws another temper tantrum. And his wife says, don't worry, honey. I'll help you get the vineyard. This is what we'll do. And she plots. She plots how to entangle Naboth in his words. She writes letters. She gets a group of conspirators together. She says, I want you to put Naboth at the head of his people. I want you to set him in front of him. And then I want you to straight up lie. I want you to sit on either side of Naboth and tell lies about things that he's said. And after you lie about him, then we'll have... We'll We'll have a case against him. We can take him off, have him killed, and then my husband can have his vineyard. And they say to the queen, okay, that's what we'll do. And so they do. That's how it goes. And as soon as it says in 1 Kings 21, verse 16, and as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, and take possession of it. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, right? The most famous of the prophets, Elijah. 
Arise, go down, meet Ahab, the king of Israel, who's in Samaria. Behold, he's in the vineyard of Naboth, where he's gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick your own blood. Let the story of Naboth serve as a warning to anyone who would read it, that you ought not to take something that is not yours, that you ought not to take it by the practice of lying against your neighbor, by the practice of killing your neighbor and and stealing what belongs to him. It's a vineyard. The story's about a vineyard, a vineyard being stolen. And the Pharisees, you know, the funny thing about Matthew is in this this chunk that we just read is uh, in the... In the chapter before, in uh, Matthew 20, Jesus tells a parable about a vineyard, about a vineyard that was rented out to some wicked tenants, and they won't give it back once it's rented to them. And it says at the end of that parable that the Pharisees knew Jesus was telling the parable against them. It was a parable about a vineyard, and they knew Jesus was telling the parable about the vineyard against them, and they still didn't put it together. Remember this Old Testament story about Naboth and his vineyard, and what happens when the people who are in charge lie and kill and take the thing that's not theirs? And yet they still come to this place in chapter 22 where they plot how to entangle Jesus in his words. The plotting of the Pharisees has blinded them to something they already know. And the thing that they know that actually should hold them back from making such a plot. The plotting of the Pharisees has blinded them to something they already know that should hold them back from making such a plot. What do you know? What do you know that should hold you back from making such a plot? Have you ever sought to entangle somebody in their own words? Be warned. The passage does bring us a warning. We should let it land on us. But it gets worse in the second verse, 16. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know you're true. You teach the way of God truthfully and you don't care about anyone's opinion and you're not swayed by appearances. Now, wait a minute. If the Pharisees themselves don't go, the Pharisees send their own disciples and they send them with the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Why is this, why is this uh, such an unlikely pairing? Why is this detail at all important? Well, they, they are an unlikely pairing, the, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Uh, think of it this way. Imagine, imagine, uh, imagine if Russia picked the president of the United States. I know, maybe a few years ago, we were worried about such things like that. Imagine if Russia picked the president of the United States. Okay, or a different one. Imagine if China picked the president of the United States. Imagine if anybody besides the American people picked our president. 
But imagine, but you go, I, I don't want a Chinese president. I don't want a Russian president. That's okay. Let's just imagine that whatever that country is, that they picked a president who was from Lincoln, Nebraska. And China said, don't worry about it, all you guys. Your president, the president of the United States, even though we picked him, he's going to be from your country. He's gonna, and, and even more so, he's going to be from Lincoln. How do you feel about that president from Lincoln, Nebraska, who was not chosen by the American people? Do you trust him? Do you, do you support him? How do, you, how do you live as a citizen when another country picks your president and says, it's okay, he's one of you? That's what it is to be a Herodian. Rome picked the leader of the Jews. And they said, don't fret, all you people of Israel. We picked a Jew to be your leader. It's the family of the Herods. And the Herodian dynasty comes through. So he's one of your own. How do you think the Jews felt about this leader, this Jewish leader who was picked by Rome? Do you support him? Do you support his policies? Do you believe the things that he says when he speaks to you? Do you pay him taxes? Well, some people did. That's the Herodians. They said, you know what? We've got to be expedient in the times. We've got to get along with what's going on here. Read the signs of the times. If this guy's in charge and Rome is backing him up with their swords, we'd better pay him taxes. We'd, we'd better support him. We'd better get behind this political entity and do what the best that we can politically to make this work. The Pharisees were concerned about something different. They were concerned about the right doctrine. They were concerned about the right theology. They were concerned about the right religious practice. And as far as the Herodians were concerned, they were like, those lousy people, they don't get it. We need to stand up against the Roman puppet king. We need to stand for the things of God. We need to make sure that we're doing everything the right way, the right religious practice. The Pharisees are concerned about theology and religious practice. They're anti-Herod, they're anti-Rome, and the Herodians are very concerned about politics. They're trying to do the most expedient thing politically. Here's another question. Are you so concerned about one area of life that you're willing to lie to keep it. You know, uh, several of you have probably read the story of Harry Potter, and if you haven't, uh, spoiler alert. Um, there's a thing in one of the later books, uh, yeah, right, there's a thing in one of the later books called a horcrux. It's this terrible, wicked thing uh, that allows you to split your soul. Um, and the reason that a character in Harry Potter wants to split his soul is so that he can cheat death. I can hide a piece of my soul in an object, and if I do that, if you kill one part of me, the other part of me still lives. And so, you, you know, the, the, the bad guy splits himself into seven pieces, and uh, one, of the, one of the whole points of the book is to go find these objects uh, where these pieces of the soul are and uh, destroy them so that you can ultimately, you know, ultimately kill the bad guy. Are we ever in danger? Are you ever in danger of splitting your life? I think that's what I see when I, look at, when I look at the Herodians, when I look at the Pharisees. These are people who are splitting their life into different 
categories. The Herodians are so focused on the political expediency of the time that they're willing to lie to protect it. Just like the bad guy in Harry Potter was willing to do a lot to try and kill Harry Potter and all his friends because he was just trying to keep, keep safe this little piece of his soul that he thought he was going to lose because if he lost this piece of his soul, that would be death. Is that how you feel about some area of your life? Is that how you feel about the political arena of your life? Have you split your soul so that the political side of it is so important that you're willing to lie about other things, that you would be willing to kill others because that part of your soul, if that part of your soul is lost, it's death. Or on the other hand, if you're like the Pharisees and the religious part of their life, how they appear in church, how they appear among the people of God, the, the way they practice their religion, what they know, their right doctrine about their religion, that piece of their life is so important, more important than anything else, so important that when that part of their soul is threatened, they're willing to lie and kill just to protect it. Is there an area of your life where you're tempted to split your life into parts, religious parts, political parts, sometimes even family parts? And are you willing to tell yourself that one of those areas is so important that the rules don't count, you're allowed to lie to preserve it? Is it an academic party? The part of you that feels like life, and if it's threatened, it feels like death. What are you willing to do to preserve it? It's dangerous, right? The warning of the passage hits us again. But then, uh, you know, this here's, here's the, um, the next verse is the, uh, is the very interesting part. Because here's their plot. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? They come to Jesus and they ask him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Why is this a smart plan for them to work together? It's a smart plan for them to work together because the Pharisees, being anti-Roman, do not want to pay taxes to Rome. And Luke tells us in Luke 16, 14, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And perhaps the Pharisees were like uh, the folks, uh, folks who believe in their head taxes theft. When the Pharisees ask Jesus they, this question, they want Jesus to say yes they want Jesus to say yes. Yes, we should pay taxes to Jesus. Uh, we should pay taxes to Herod, and they want Jesus to say yes so that they can say, "Jesus, you are no Jew. You love Rome. You are for our enemy, and this proves Jesus that you cannot be the Messiah." Now, on the other side, you have the Herodians. The Herodians, being politically savvy, are willing to do what works in the circumstances, uh, right? Uh, a Jewish leader who's chosen by Rome is good enough for them, and they can pay taxes to Rome to show their loyalty. That's just fine with them. When they ask Jesus this question, they want Jesus to say, no, no, we shouldn't pay taxes to, G to, to Caesar, we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar so that, they, so that the Herodians can say, you are no Jew. You are not loyal to our leader. You will not pay the taxes that are due him. And so you get it? It's good for, the, uh, good for the Pharisees and the Herodians to work together because either way that Jesus answers this question, it's lose-lose. If he says yes, he loses. He's arrested. He's killed. He says no, he's arrested. He loses. He's killed. 
It's a classic case of that old saying, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But in verse 18, Jesus is aware. It says, uh, in the ESV, it says he's aware of their malice. And he says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? It's very interesting that he calls them hypocrites because when they approach him, what did they say to him? They say, we know you're true, and we know that you, uh, he says, literally they say, you do not look into the faces of men, which was just a euphemism in the, in the original language for saying, you're, you're not swayed by appearances, right? Uh, a hypocrite, uh, literally, very literally, a hypocrite was an actor, someone who stood on a stage and put on a mask to play a role. And so Jesus says, you came and you said to me that I don't wear masks, but you come to me in a mask. You tell me I'm true, but you tell me I'm true in order that you can try and prove that I'm false. Oh, why are you tempting me? Why are you putting me to the test? What do the Proverbs say about something like this? I try and encourage everybody whenever I get the chance. Here's another. This is for free. Uh, there are 31 days in a month, and there are 31 chapters in Proverbs. You see how that lines up? You should do that. On March 5th, you should read Proverbs chapter 5. What do the Proverbs say about this situation? Proverbs 26, verses 24, uh, verse, chapter 26, verse 24 says this, Whoever hates disguises himself with his lips, and he harbors deceit in his heart. The Pharisees should have known that too. They're experts in the Bible. Whoever hates disguises himself. He's a hypocrite. He puts a mask on to play a role. And the role is someone who is saying, oh, I'm for you, Jesus. But ultimately, he harbors deceit in his heart. Jesus is not fooled. In verse 19, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Show me the coin. The denarius. The denarius is, a, is, a, is an honest day's wage for an honest day's laborer. That's about the price of it. Show me the coin. And then he asks, whose likeness and inscription is this on the coin? If I had a quarter in my pocket, if I carried cash anymore, um, I would pull out, and you could see that on the, on the quarter is George Washington. So this quarter, this piece of money must belong to the United States in some way, shape, or form. And we trade in it, right? If you go to Europe, you get the euro. It has all the countries of Europe that are on it that you trade in the euro. And Jesus just says, you know, let's find out Let's find out, let's answer this by looking at something. You say I won't look into a man's face, uh, into a man's face. You guys have a mask on. Let's see the face that's on the coin. Whose likeness is on the coin and whose inscription is this? And this is where I say, uh, a friend of mine said it this way, a problem well framed is half solved. A problem well framed is half solved. Ask the right question and you invite both the right answer and you prepare yourself to receive it. Whose likeness is inscription? And they said in verse 21, Caesar's. And he said to them, the most wise thing that could be said in this moment, then therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You see what he did there? He said, here's the inscription Whose name is on this? On the one side, it says Caesar Augustus. It means he's a king. And on the flip side of the coin, it, it probably said Pontifex Maximus, which means the, uh, the, the, like the divine pontiff, like, the, like Caesar was also the priest. And the belief was Caesar was God incarnate, but this coin belongs to him and you ought to give it back to him. 
And then, he, and then there's silence on the other side of it. He lets it hang in the air. What's he saying on the other side? Whose likeness and inscription is on you? To whom do you belong? Who are you made in the image of? If you're made in the image of God, you belong to God. Whose inscription is on you? And whatever part of you belongs to God, you ought to give that to God. And don't sweat the parts of you that you have that belong to Caesar. He can have them. Whose likeness and inscription is on you? And when they heard it, they marveled. And they left him and went away. And marveled, you know, marveled there is really funny. Uh, I, I found out this week that, that uh, th- this word for marveled is in Matthew seven times. And the first person in Matthew who marvels is Jesus himself. He marvels at the faith of a soldier. And the last person who marvels in the book of Matthew is Pilate, who marvels that Jesus doesn't answer a single charge. He keeps his mouth shut when he's before Pontius Pilate. And in between, all the marveling usually happens at some kind of miracle and in this moment. The Pharisees marvel at the answer of Jesus. He slips through their trap. He won't be, he won't be stopped by them. Now, Jesus is going to be tested by other groups. He's going to be tested by the Pharisees themselves later in this chapter. And then in the next chapter, he's going to pronounce a series of seven woes on the Pharisees. And after that, he's going to teach some more. But in chapter 26, Jesus knows what's coming In chapter 26, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, including this one we just read, he says to the disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. It looks like Jesus knows he's going to lose against the Pharisees. He knows they're going to kill him. He knows how they're going to kill him. And he doesn't run away from it. He moves very steadily, very deliberately toward it. Why? Why? He does it for the Pharisees. He does it for the Pharisees. Jesus died for Pharisees. For the ones who could recognize the likeness and inscription of Caesar on a coin, but they couldn't recognize the likeness and inscription of God on themselves, Jesus died. And when he rose again on the third day and he came out of the tomb, yes, there were a number of Pharisees who spread the rumor that the disciples overcame the guards and uh, that they, that they uh, stole Jesus' body. That's Matthew 27, 11 through 14. But here's a great question. How did Matthew get that story? M- Matthew wasn't privy to the secrets of the Pharisees. And further, why didn't that story stick and end the Jesus movement before it even began? What had to happen? Some Pharisees had to become Christians. Christians in the early church could point to converted Pharisees and say, here is someone who's come along with us and they know the story of the stolen body isn't true. 
And further proof that there were Pharisees who were converted is found in Acts 15.5, where it talks about some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Believers who were Pharisees. Now, in Acts 15, still, they still caused some trouble. It's still kind of hard. Old habits die hard. But they were believers. Jesus died for Pharisees. And for me, that is good news. The people who lied to Jesus, the people who argued against Jesus, the people who plotted to kill Jesus, they're the ones who were saved by Jesus. At some point, the story had to come back to their mind. Whose inscription is on this coin? Whose inscription is on you? To whom do you belong? And that's the most important takeaway here. To whom do you belong? If you've lied to Jesus, if you've argued against Jesus, If you've plotted against the church of Jesus, the good news today is that you can be saved by Jesus. And if you are saved by Jesus, don't forget to pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar. You get more of that in Romans uh, Romans 13. It said there are two things that are certain, death and taxes, so pay your taxes. But remember this. If you're born once, You'll die twice. But if you're born twice, born of woman and born from above, having the mark of Jesus put on you, if you're born twice, you can only die once. That's the certainty of death and taxes. The inscription of Jesus on you. He's the one to whom you belong. And he's the one to whom we come to. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, oh, we thank you for teaching us We thank you that you paid not just taxes, but you paid the ultimate price, and that in coming out of the grave, you've justified us. You've put your mark on us in a whole new way, that we have the likeness of being made in the image of God on the one hand, but when we give our lives to you, we're united to you in your death and your resurrection, a mark put on us in baptism, a mark that we celebrate at the table. And so we ask that you use the power of that mark on us today to help us walk in newness of life, in repentance and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.